to introduce our next speaker. Dr. David Bird is a professor of surgery and chief of surgical oncology at the University of Washington here in Seattle. He's also founder and attending physician for the Melanoma Clinic at the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. He is the vice chair for the American Joint Committee on Cancer. So please help me welcome Dr. Bird. My voice is not usually this low. I have something that I don't know what it is, but it's made my voice lower, so uh, bear with me a little bit. So I, I thought I would, uh, since there's an event tomorrow and I'm talking about melanoma, I have to come up and bring one of these because this is near and dear to my heart. Um, and as you know, there's a walk tomorrow morning. I imagine many of you might be there. If I'm awake, I'm gonna be there. I will warn you, if any of you are anywhere near the U District tomorrow, that tomorrow is the Seattle to Portland bike ride. If you don't know that, about 10,000 riders go on that. I would not be anywhere near the Montlake Bridge area of Seattle, or you will not get back down here. So stay down here. So I'm, I'm delighted to come up and talk to you and follow Professor Neam, uh, uh, who I've worked with very closely for many years. I imagine I, I know many of you in the room because we've worked, I've been in the area for a long time and I know many of you by name, but not necessarily by face. I'm hoping to meet some of you afterwards. So I'm gonna, um, I'm, I'm more of a clinician who likes to be around scientists like Paul than a clinician scientist. So I'm gonna have a little less science, although I will throw some biology and some new treatments at you with, with melanoma toward the end. But I'm gonna talk more on the ground level like the, the, your, um, your derm surgeon who talked of, a little while ago before that. I learned a lot during that session. So I'm gonna to try to cover quite a bit here. And let's see. Well, I can start talking about some of the things. One is that one is I, 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 my intent was to start off with a slide that will be a little scary about cancer and to end in some where cancer is headed and what will be part of all of our practices in the next couple of decades because it's going to be very different than the way we practice right now. So uh, the slide that's going to be up there in a second talks about the incidence of, of melanoma and it's got the American Cancer Society statistics on cancer. So you should know that uh, melanoma shows up both in men and women in the top five or six cancers in terms of incidence, but it's not in the top 10 in terms of mortality. And you heard Dr. Nia mention, should I go ahead and try it again? Or if it, hey, okay. All right, this is the scary slide. In case you didn't know it, about one in two men will have can invasive cancer in their lifetimes in the United States, and about one in three women. That's the really scary part. The less scary part is only about one in 36 are gonna get melanoma. This is really on the whites only um, statistic. So, but still fairly common and it's clearly on the rise and there's that lead time exposure that we think is partially responsible for that. Now this is the slide I was talking about earlier and you can see it show, melanoma shows up both for men and women in terms of the top five or six of new cases diagnosed each year. This is the new stats. The number here is 44,000 for men. Two years ago this was 38,000, so gone up in two years. And this is I think 32, it was 29 two years ago. So it's gone up both in men and women. And part of this is a lead time bias. Everybody went out, who was my age, went out and deliberately got sun, put baby oil on with some iodine in it. There's, if anybody's in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, no one knows what I'm talking about. And now we don't do much of that, which is probably a good thing. So my hope is actually that's going to start dropping as we're getting a little smarter and getting a little smarter with our kids. 
but we don't know that yet. Now, the, the, the other good thing is stage one melanoma patients, this is up to 20 year survival, actually do quite well, but as it starts to get loose, and like Merkel cell, it goes to lymph nodes and to distant organs, the survival clearly drops off. So being a staging person in my other life, um, that's it, it's, it, it, stage does matter, as you heard Dr. Neum say. All right, now I wanna talk a little bit about, because I, I see what you guys do and then I see them after the diagnosis. I see some primary melanomas, but I would say about one in five patients has a full intact melanoma, and most of the times you've already taken it off. So let's talk a little bit about my perspective of what I see is going on in terms of diagnosis. So one is lesion on the back, okay, 48-year-old man, one centimeter lesion, method of biopsy. You already heard the techniques by my, uh, the predecessor a couple of talks ago. As you know, now I, I, the terms, I was interested in the terms that were used because the, I look at the terms on the PATH report and there's usually clinical indication and then what the specimen was. And to me there's, I sort of think of a superficial shave and a deep shave. To me a deep shave is a full thickness, usually excision, but not always, but a full thickness where you're gonna be down to the bottom of the lesion. And a superficial shave, may or may not be down to the bottom of the lesion depending on what it is. But I heard some different terminology, so I'm not quite sure which way to go, except the key is uh, uh, you already heard about sending tissue off if there's any question about what it is, but also if you think it's gonna be a, possibly a melanoma, get underneath it, at least do a deep shave. Uh, and if, you, if you're cutting through it, what happens is, well, here's the other, of course, other ways to diagnose it. It would be just a narrow excision or to do a punch and there are various times to do that that I'll show you in a second. Now we have synoptic reports, and many of you have seen these now because the College of American Pathology now essentially mandates that a synoptic report come out, comes out, and we have lots of different descriptors. Now I highlight the ones that we actually use in the clinic because the other ones rarely change management. We know that thickness is important, now notice it says at least 0.7 millimeters here, and it's because of this, the deep margin's positive. Now, the, the clinical implication for that is not that the, because the, the melanoma's been cut through, that it's gonna spread throughout the body. We actually don't think that that happens. But it makes that discussion with the patient a little tricky if it's borderline, kind of between a thin and a possibly intermediate thickness melanoma, not necessarily about the margin that you're gonna take, but about whether you talk about sentinel lymph node dissection. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So it actually ties a little bit of an arm beside my back and the patient's back if this deep margin is positive. So the main plea is if it looks like it may be a melanoma to go ahead and try to get a full thickness biopsy. Now the other parts of this description up here, the Clark levels, as I mentioned in a second, we really don't use Clark levels, and I'll talk about uh, why in a second. Ulceration, we know is very important in terms of prognosis for the primary tumor. And mitotic rate, I'm gonna spend some time talking about, and many of you may know that has now risen to, to a high significance in patients with thin melanomas. All right, now what about this lesion? Now this is a broad-based lesion, and it's got the variegated border, it's got the raised areas and not, and this might be one, even a simple excision, that's not a small incision, just to take the thing off. So this is one where many people would do a punch, and the area to punch, I think in this audience, it's probably fairly intuitive, but if you're gonna do a punch, don't do a punch with the normal skin showing 
whatever it is to the normal skin. The pathologists, of course, just roll their eyes there. Why are you giving us normal skin? We know what that is. You, go at, you, you want a diagnosis of what it is, and you want to know what is the likely thick, thick, thickest area. So if you're going to do a punch, you take an area that looks the thickest if you're not going to take the whole thing off. Because sometimes just taking the whole lesion off is a pretty substantial deal. Now, I think everybody in the room would put their vote on melanoma with this lesion. If anybody thinks differently, um, they probably should be doing something different. <laughs> now, Clark level invasion, I want to mention that mainly for historical reasons. Most of you have grown up with Clark's levels. We really don't use those anymore because it turns out when you put those through an analysis of a large database through the, the, our, our melanoma database at the AJCC, which is from many countries, it turns out that falls out as an independent variable of a predictor for prognosis. When you put mitosis in, ulceration in, and thickness, they are all significant. Clark levels fall out. So we really don't use Clark levels anymore. However, they are in the PATH report. And here's the other thing I want to make sure everybody in this room, there's a couple of take-home points. This is one of them, right here. Level does not mean stage. And I can tell you, I have patients who come see me, they've just gotten diagnosed. Many times, you guys have, have talked to them. And they have heard, you may not have said, they have heard stage four and they come in thinking they're in a pine box. And I, I say, I, I, one of my first sentences to patients is, I want to make sure you didn't confuse level and stage. And about a fifth of patients go like this, and then tears, there's tears in the room for 10 minutes. Because they're certain they were going to die. And that language, when you give them the information, make sure they really hear level and stage are not the same. Because I hear this all the time, and this is where you guys are the front line to make that communication. It is so important for those patients to not have that week or hopefully less that we get them in and not know that they're not stage four melanoma. I put this up because there's some scary things out there. This was a 28-year-old woman who came to me about 15 years ago with a bunch of lymph nodes in her axilla. And I looked on her back because they said, well, this was, we found out this is melanoma, but nobody had diagnosed the primary. This is sitting on her back. There's a pink raised kind of wet nodule right over the trapezius muscle on the same side. And, and I was actually a dermatology group who Found the, found the node and missed that. And the bottom line is anybody can miss an amelanotic melanoma. Those are quite tricky. I think there's another one here. Now this one, now if you look at this, you might say, well, that may be a little basal cell or something else. It could be maybe a Merkel cell that Paula was showing. They can be quite tricky. And those are the ones, of course, that are almost always nodular and raised quite a bit because they're just not thought about it. And at least 5% of melanomas are amelanotic. And usually the history is a pretty good giveaway that Merkel cells would be growing a lot faster than this one would. This is bad because at diagnosis, you can see this big primary, but look at these things over here. This is scalp. And anything within about two centimeters of the primary we call a satellite. Anything farther than two centimeters and toward the nodal basin, we talk about in-transit lesions. Those are manifestations of the same thing, which is intradermal spread of melanoma cells. It's a bad actor. This puts the patients into a stage three category, even if they don't have positive nodes, because of that, because it has the same clinical significance. Now, I want to talk a little bit, because you guys are also on the front lines on this, is what to do when you make a diagnosis 
that there's a discussion of wide excision, and many of you do your own excisions for the in situ lesions or the thin lesions. Some of you may do sentinel node biopsies. But I also see a fair amount of, of lab workup being done and imaging. And I just want to mention to you that we're really spending a lot of money with some staging studies. I have patients sometimes with, with stage one or two melanoma who've already had a PET, scan, PET CT, CT scans, and a brain MRI. And I don't know if you know the cost of those things these days. Take a look at the cost of a PET CT. You don't even want to know how much that costs. So early stage melanoma patients, you're much more likely to find a false positive than you are a true positive in those studies. So we really reserve the imaging studies for patients with what we think is going to be locally advanced disease. Now, if, they, if we do think they have locally advanced disease, we do consider at least CT scans. I'm really talking about T4 lesions greater than four millimeters, especially if they're ulcerated, or if any patient has symptoms that are not explainable, numbness or weakness, sort of neurologic symptoms, GI symptoms. The other thing is about lab work. Do any of you order LDHs on your patients with melanoma? Okay, all that LDH does, all LDH does is tell you if your stage four melanoma is really bad or really, really bad. That's it. So it really has no role in either the initial diagnosis of an earlier stage, a non-stage four melanoma, or in follow-up, in spite of what you may have read. So I would discourage you from getting any lab work. Eventually, we're gonna have a melanoma-specific blood test. Then we might wanna talk about a follow-up plan in higher-risk patients. But for now, I would discourage you from getting LDHs. Now, the T, there's been a little change in the staging system. I'm sure you're all aware of this. It's, this is now, it's actually been since 2009. These drawings were from 2006. But a T1A melanoma has now changed from, this two, from the uh, sixth edition to include a, a lesion less than one millimeter where it is, has a mitotic rate of less than one. Notice how the Clark levels are now marked out, and there's no ulceration. So no ulceration, mitotic rate less than one, and less than a millimeter would be a T1A. And a T1B now is the same thickness, less than a millimeter, but it can have ulceration or a mitotic rate greater than or equal to one. Now I'm gonna come back to that one mitotic rate because that's put us all in a bit of a problem here about where to go with this. And the mitosis is really talking about the mitogenesis of the cell. These cells have the ability to divide and proliferate or not. And we know that mitogenesis is a huge issue with melanoma. And I was uh, the editor for the part of the staging manual with the melanoma work group. So I sat around listening to the world's experts talk about, for two days, talk about mitotic rate. They spent a half a day talking about whether the number should be one or greater than one. A half a day. That got really old after about an hour. Actually, about a half hour that got old. All right, now, that, don't pay attention to all the detail on this, but melanoma, mitotic rate in survival, this is where this comes from. This is, uh, all, this is number of mitoses in the ordinate, and zero, here's the five-year survival rate. You know, 98% if you have zero mitoses. This is not broken down by, by, the, by the thickness. And if you've got a really high, this is 11,000 patients in a large database. If it gets very high, that drops way down. So if you have no mitoses, you are going to do very well, usually, depending on thickness and others. Now, and when you, this is a paper we put out about a year ago. If you look at the mitotic rate in survival, there's a step-down set of curves very similar to the other staging curves that you mentioned that can be broken down. 
But I think what's most relevant to this group, and Paul said earlier, what's the median thickness of melanomas? They're thin, right? They're not the thick ones. So those are the ones that are coming in. So what about the thin melanomas? So this, this is a busy slide, but just pay attention to a couple of things. This is the thickness now on the melanomas, up to four, greater than you know, four, three to six millimeters. And this is the number of, of the mitotic rate. So if you have a very thin melanoma, less than 0 0.5, 0 0.5 or less, and you have zero mitoses, or less than one mitosis, you've got a 97%. This is 10-year survival. But look here, if this is only 0.5 to 1, these are still thin melanomas. If you've got two mitoses, you're already down to 86% at 10 years. There's a 14% death rate. So it actually makes a pretty big difference. And even those thin ones, Whereas you'll see the recommendations are maybe not do much in the way of sentinel node workup or others. You might want to, you know, patients need to know they've got a recurrence rate that is substantial, even if it's thin, if the mitoses are higher. And as you might expect, mitotic rate goes up with thickness. This is no surprise. The thicker your melanoma, the more likely it is to be proliferative. There's no rocket science in this curve. Right. So the, the summary of mitotic rate is mitoses are now reported. We're, we're trying to stay away from high power fields. Do any of you still get reports with high power fields in it? You know, this, if you sit down with a pathologist or if any of you are dermatopathologists, the definition of a high power field depends on what kind of scope you got. It's actually not the same. This is actually uniform. Per millimeter square, a millimeter is a millimeter, no matter if you're in Australia or in the United States, that's still a millimeter. We may not use millimeters as much as they do, but it's still a millimeter. Um, and we know that anything really one or supposed to be greater than or equal to one is significant, especially in thin melanomas. And it's essentially replaced the Clark levels for T1 melanomas in the prognosis and even some of the management. Now, and by the way, the slides I have up here, I'm, I'm going to keep on the computer. If any of you want the slides, you're certainly welcome to have them and use them. And I don't, there's no handouts because we're trying to be paper friendly, and I am too. Okay, so the, the current staging manual of melanomas, we've gotten rid of the, the Breslow 0.76 and greater. You know, that didn't, if, you, if you actually read Breslow's paper, there's about 75 patients treated, and none of them less than 0.76 recurred. That's where it came from. This is no big data set. So even integers is now what we use. As you can see, a T1 less than a, less than a millimeter, T2, 1 to 2, T3, 2 to 4, and then T4 greater than 4. And then there's an A and a B, and ulceration is usually what kicks somebody into a B, but also you see for thin melanomas only, and this is not applying to the thicker ones, but for thin melanomas only, mitotic rate is an independent predictor and, uh, and prognostic indicator such that, again, a patient who's got a, T, a, a 0.7 millimeter thick non-ulcerated melanoma with a mitotic rate of one is technically T1B. So when they ask, what's my stage? They're T1B, that puts them into a category of a slightly higher risk, although that's really bordering on so close to being a T1A that, that it's a tough discussion to have. But we know that by, by T category, again, there's this survival drop down the same way you saw in mitotic rate. These, are, these numbers are, are quite predictive of how patients are going to do. And you notice how these curves don't quite flatten out. Doesn't that bother you a little bit? Wouldn't you like to think that these would flatten out over time? They don't. And all of you, many of you may have seen a patient can come back 15 years later with a positive groin node after having a pretibial melanoma on the same leg and no other primary. 
then it's, it's been held in check by something, preferably the, probably the immune system for 15 years, and then shown up in the same node. It inevitably has been there the whole time. Now, this is a, a take-home slide, too. This is actually straight out of the NCCN guidelines, so you don't have to memorize this. It's easily accessible. Many of you probably know this. And the good thing to know is most of these were based on fairly large retrospective studies, but now it's considered, at least by the NCCN group, of which our center is one, that for these thicknesses, less than a, uh, a millimeter, one to two, two to four, greater than four, that this, these recommended margins are now considered ca having category one evidence to back them up. Uh, this one, and probably most of you use five millimeters for in situ melanomas, because I know you do a lot of these. Just so you know, this was based on a consensus conference. Was anybody part of the 1992 consensus conference for this? I know Mike Pepcorn in our institution was. This was a group who got in a room and said, what are we gonna come out with as a recommendation? Have any of you been part of consensus conferences? Well, consensus means there's a, it's the only thing everybody could agree on in the room. That's it. Really, take, take, think about consensus conferences of any type. Take it with a grain of salt. It's the only thing. They had to, the only way they were going to leave the room is if they came up with something, and this is what they came up with. There's no rocket science to this. This is not considered category one evidence. But you know, most of us think it's perfectly safe, and you can, you can really close just about anything that you take a five millimeter margin off. So nobody really wants to mess with this one anymore, so we just kind of accept it. But just so you know, there isn't a lot of science behind it. I think you all know the reason why we take wider margins for invasive melanoma is because of satellite lesions which separate off, and you heard Merkel cell can do the same thing. Basal cells pushing front, squamous cells pushing front. Now, I want to switch to lymph nodes a little bit. Now, a couple of points about lymph nodes. This one, I think, is pretty obvious. This is a groin area. This is someone who had had a melanoma on the pretibial area about, about uh, a year before, came in with this. And um, the chances of that being melanoma in this setting are exceedingly high. Now, I don't think there's any general surgeons in the room, but I see all the time that somebody goes in and just does an excisional biopsy of this to, yes, confirm that it's metastatic melanoma. This patient does not need an excisional biopsy to get that information. They need a fine needle aspiration. This node is big because it's replaced with melanoma. A fine needle in two minutes in the clinic will give you that information, and you know where you stand. Then you will talk about further studies. The patient doesn't need an excisional biopsy to determine that. A lot, just so you know, general surgeons are trained when somebody sends you a patient or me a patient with an enlarged lymph node, we're supposed to take it out to make a diagnosis, mainly for lymphoma, because you want to get the architecture of the node. In the appropriate clinical setting of a carcinoma, a squame, big squame in the oral pharynx, it's got something here, a melanoma on the same leg where this shows, put it together, they don't need an excision, they need a fine needle aspiration. So you might want to educate your surgical colleagues if you run into somebody like this to, to avoid that. What happens is they get a wound problem, and then they come in for their definitive lymphadenectomy, and they gotta heal up the first wound. And it's just a less invasive way to find that out. So we're not, I'm not gonna talk more about the positive nodes, except that this patient would get distant staging, unlike who I mentioned earlier. This patient would probably get a PET CT, because you really wanna look for disease elsewhere before you do a formal lymphadenectomy. We're really talking about patients with clinically negative nodes, and as you can imagine, something down lower than this, it's gonna to go to one of these nodes, but you don't quite know which one it is. And I think everybody in this room now knows about sentinel node biopsy since it's been around since 1992 now. 
concept is very simple. In clinically node negative patients, in this way this is a back lesion, there will be one or sometimes a couple of nodes, if they're in parallel, that are the most likely nodes to harbor metastatic tumor that's gone to nodes and not the downstream lymph nodes per se. So instead of taking them all out like we did until 1992, now you can selectively take out a node or nodes that are first without doing the complete lymphadenectomy unless they end up with positive nodes. So it's a way to get the most information with the least amount of invasion. It rapidly caught fire many, many years ago. But at some point, you get diminishing returns for who should be offered this. I want to spend a little time talking about that because I know you all have those conversations with patients about whether to send them for more conversation or not. And I will tell you, I, I actually see a fair number of patients where both, you, uh, both of us agree they really don't need a sentinel biopsy, but they just need to hear somebody else say it too. I'm okay seeing those patients. It's not usually a very long conversation. They can reinforce what you're telling them. It's not a waste to send them. If all of you did it all at once, it might be a problem. But I, I think that's an important thing for patients' peace of mind. So feel free to, to send them if you need to. Or at least call and talk. Sometimes I can do it on the phone as well. And just the technical parts, I think you know, we do a radiopharmaceutical injection of technetium, or 99M technetium sulfur colloid next to the site, and sure enough, within about a half hour, you will see a focus or two. This patient's likely to have a couple of sentinel nodes. It was on the back, so this is the right axilla. On the day of surgery before the operating room, in the operating room, this happens to be an arm, not a back, but this is, we've injected some blue dye prior to a wide excision, and we know that there's, going to, there's a little blue dot right there that, that's been marked by nuclear medicine. We know we have two techniques to find the node. We go in, make a very tiny incision. These are actually little sin retractors. If any of you do derm surgery, you'll know those are tiny. And here's a, a blue node with a blue channel running into it. So you can really, with a very uh, usually non-morbid procedure, get the node that's the most likely to have tumor in it. And then we check it with a probe, a gamma probe, there's a number of those out there because it should be hot and blue. Anything that's hot, blue, or feels bad comes out and is called a sentinel node. That's why you might see patients who have more than one sentinel node in a specimen. Any of those criteria come out. Now we can now ask the pathologist, instead of giving them a big lymphadenectomy specimen, we can say, can you take that sentinel node and just cut it into little tiny step sections to look more closely and identify smaller clusters of melanoma cells? They can't do that if you send them a lymphadenectomy specimen with 20, 25 lymph nodes. But they can for one to three, and that's what we ask them to do. And they can not only find melanoma, but they can find, they can really do the step section. You can find it in the subcapsule or sinuses and really find fairly small quantities. And as you'll hear in a second, any melanoma in a lymph node is probably significant. And this, this just is another example of a scalp melanoma. You know, until we did lymphocentigraphy, who would know where the node is that drains that scalp? Who would have predicted it's going to be right there? But with a, with a radiopharmaceutical saying, look right there, then we can make a little tiny incision. You can probably even see blue from the back of the room. So it makes it really easy to find where the one is. Now, you also heard Paul Neum talk about uh, Merkel cells in the neck area, they get tricky because if you're injecting the same area that's right next to where the node is, both your radiopharmaceutical makes everything look black right where the node is, so you can't differentiate the node from the injection site. Same thing with the blue. You can't tell blue node versus blue background. It's kind of like looking for a marshmallow in a cumulus cloud, you know, white on white not easy to see. So that's very tricky on some of those. So some of these neck and head and neck melanomas are a bit tricky. Now, whether to do a sentinel node biopsy or not, mo most of you have probably heard of this trial. This was Don Morton's work. He's the father of 
uh, now grandfather, of, of sentinel lymph node biopsy for melanoma, really worldwide. And this was the trial that was supposed to give the answer. This was the patients who were going to get a wide excision alone uh, with observation of the node. And these were, had to be at least 1.2 millimeters thick. So this was a group that had some risk. Or a wide excision and a sentinel node biopsy. And if the sentinel node biopsy was positive, there's a pointer here somewhere. Well, you can follow it down. Then they would go on and get a completion lymphat lymph node dissection. If the sentinel node was negative, there it is, then they would get observed. And this was the trial that was going to give the answer. Has anybody read this article? I hope many of you had. If not, it's worth looking at for a couple of reasons. And here's one of the problems. This is a table from the article. Now, I would think the best truth-telling of an article is to take the, the uh, primary objective or endpoint of the trial and put that out as the number one graph. Which one of those do you think is the primary endpoint? I'd at least put it, you know, up here in the top right or something. It's this one. Because you look here and you say, this is a positive trial. Look at that. These curves are different. Well, they're different because you have node positive versus node negative patients. Of course, they're going to do worse. This is actually melanoma-specific survival. So what happened to us, everybody went, oh, this is a negative trial. Here we thought we've been doing this with early, early, early intervention, and it's not working. And the spin on the article was, well, um, there, we didn't show a difference in overall and melanoma-specific survival but you should think about doing this in node-positive patients. And there was a huge criticism of Don Morton and his group, including from the surgical community, particularly from the dermatolo dermatology community, about overselling this. But if you really look at the article, there actually is some information that is helpful. Only 16% of these patients were node-positive. You've got to have a large number of node-positive patients to show a difference with these two things. And it turns out, when you look at the detail of the paper, if you look at the five, these are patients with positive nodes. So the 16% the that have positive nodes. If you look at the group who had, their, they did a sentinel node biopsy, and if it was positive, they had an immediate node dissection. Here's their five-year survival, 72%. The patients who had no sentinel node biopsy were followed, and then if the nodes popped up and got them out, five-year survival, 52%. There was actually a 20% absolute difference in survival in the node-positive patients. The reason this didn't get louder press is because the study was not powered to show this as a statistically significant difference. This is not statistically significant, but could, does it, could it make a difference in the node-positive patients, which is really the only group you would think so, quite possibly. So this is a controversy that's ongoing, but I thought you should be aware of this slide because everybody knows about the other one that doesn't show any difference. Now this is also kind of uh, helpful. Are, are nodes that are positive with melanoma are they all going to become a problem? And this was very interesting because, as I told you, in that study, this is the sentinel node biopsy, 16% of the patients had positive nodes. So you found that out right at the beginning of the study. And there's a false negative rate of about 5%, meaning the sentinel node was not predictive and they really had positive nodes. So over time, about 20, 21% of patients who got a sentinel node biopsy up front were node positive. The most of them we knew up front but the, another, another, another group showed up later. The other group which did not have the nodes out, of course, zero, at point zero, because you didn't take anything out, are all gonna be negative. But look at the fact they both come together. This really says, if you've got melanoma in your lymph nodes, it is gonna show up. It's gonna come out, it's gonna come back. The point of when you find it is where the controversy 
supplies. Intuitively, you would think the earliest possible time to diagnose something and get it out that you would improve survival, but we actually don't know the answer to that. All right, so this came out, this is hot off the press. This is about a week ago. So the joint guidelines by the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Society of Surgical Oncology came out. This is on a couple of different sources. It'll be in JCO and um, um, the Annals of Surgical Oncology. And here were, this was a review of 73 highly reviewed studies by a group of experts from all these, both these organizations. And they were pretty um, set in their statements, but I think there's a couple I want to focus on. Everybody agrees for the intermediate thickness melanoma, this is a good idea because they have a risk of having something in their nodes. It's clearly going to make a difference in their treatment and their prognosis. The thicker one's a little bit less clear because they're more likely to already have distant disease, so it's not necessarily going to stop in the nodes. But certainly for prognosis purposes, a lot of patients want to know this. This is what I want to talk about a little bit. So for thin melanomas, they say there's insufficient evidence to support routine sentinel lymph node biopsy for T1 or less than a millimeter, although may be considered in selected high-risk patients. And we'll, I'll show some data on the mitotic rate that I mentioned earlier. And then this other one, if they have a positive node, what do you do then? Do they all need the rest of their nodes out? And we'll talk briefly about that. So here is data. This is actually unpublished data. And, they, and unfortunately, we're a little behind that mitotic rate with survival in terms of mitotic rate with positive nodes. You would think if it has a worse survival that a higher mitotic rate should have a higher lymph node positivity. But so far there's almost nothing published on that. This was a presentation at the SSO back in 2010 and this is a group of 885 melanomas from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Here's the mitotic rate. This is not divided up by, uh, uh, by it's, only, it's in T1s, but it doesn't break down the T1s yet. You can see less than 1%, 3% node positive rate. That's kind of what most of us quote. If they had a mitotic rate of 1, remember I told you about the half-day conversation about that? It's 7%. Close to that if it's 2, and it really goes up in these thin melanomas if they have a higher mitotic rate. So certainly a conversation with at least this group, and maybe even this group, is something to consider. I have patients who really want to know if they're in that 7 or 8%. I really try to talk them out of this. But this group, you know, I, I would, I, if we polled this room, I would bet you a fair number of you would like to know if you're in the 7 to 8% if it meant just a sentinel node biopsy. So at least that discussion for a patient has a mitotic rate of 1 or greater is a reasonable thing based on this early data. Now, more uh, also of interest, if you look at the 0.7 uh, less than 0.7 versus 0.7 to 1. So this is still T1 lesions. And you looked at the, the node positivity rate with a mitotic rate of less than 1 as a thin one, it's only 1%. Thin with a mitotic rate greater than 1, still pretty low. But if it's like 0.8, like we, we often see this, with a mitotic rate of less than 1, it's still about 6%. And if it's greater than 1, it's 11% based on these 885 patients. Unfortunately, this is the only data that's really published right now, and I, I use this in discussing this with patients, but I tell them this is the best information we've got, and it intuitively makes sense that there's a higher rate of node positivity and a high mitotic rate because there's a difference in survival. But we really don't have the data, to, the strong data to back that up. Now, the nodal burden of disease. Well, how much melanoma should be present in the lymph node before you call it positive? And the staging committee also spent about a half a day on this, and decided that actually if you find any cells in a lymph node, it's probably significant. 
So now we do, as you know, we've been doing immunohistochemistry on these nodes for a long time, and you can pick up these small clusters of, of cells that are clearly positive for our markers, and then you occasionally get this, which is absolutely a positive cell on one slide. And now our pathologists put down single cell immunohistochemistry positive of unknown biologic significance. Well, what does that mean? So we don't know what to do with these patients. We're observing most of these patients, but you know, is that that much different than this? We don't really know. So we're getting down a threshold of detection that's actually making it a little hard to make management plans. Now, the, the, uh, the other trial I want to mention to you, this is the trial we have ongoing right now. If you have any patients who've had a positive sentinel node, we don't know if you need to take the rest of those nodes out. We know that about 20% of patients who go on to a completion lymphadenectomy after a positive sentinel node will have additional positive nodes. So theoretically, 20 out of 100 could be helped by taking them out early. If you think about it, the only patients are going to be helped by taking them out is if they don't already have distant disease and about a third of the 20 actually have, maybe a little higher, already have distant disease. They're not going to be helped by taking the nodes out. And then is that lead time difference of taking those out now versus waiting going to make a difference? We don't know. So this is a randomized trial. It's a surgical trial that basically says if you have a positive sentinel node, we're either going to take your nodes out as is the standard of care. I won't call it a gold standard. It's more like an aluminum or a tin standard. or can we watch these and watch them with serial ultrasounds as well? This is an ongoing trial. It's a little hard to talk patients into this for kind of the opposite reasons. I only mention this because this is a conversation you're also going to have with your patient. They come in five years later after they've had their melanoma and they say, well, what's my prognosis now? And this is, this is a, a, a called conditional probability of survival. There's actually survival curves that can now be generated and will be more and more popular where you can actually tell some, a patient at year five who may have been high risk up here early on at, at, at zero that they're now, they've gone from a 25% risk of recurrence down to a 10% risk. There's actually some data to back that up. So these will be becoming more and more apparent. We have a, a website we're working on to try to get these conditional survival curves out. On your patients you're following over time to kind of tell them where they are now. Follow-up after treatment. I want to spend a second on this. You know, what do these patients need afterwards? Well, they really need good clinical exams. I, ask, I tell them to do self-exams of their skin and lymph nodes once a month. If they're women doing breast exams, turn that into health maintenance today. You know, get your husband to look at your back and if you're doing the exams, you know, they can turn it into a special day there once a month. And a lot of them kind of, oh, they kind of think that's a good idea. Um, in terms of follow-up, I know that most, many of you guys have a three-month thing that happens for a year. I'm not quite sure where the data comes from that, but for the first year you follow them for three months, and then it's kind of six months, and you can do it, but that's a lot of visits in that first year. Now, patients often need and want that for the first year, but then I would encourage you to liberalize that a little bit to maybe six months, where you're really checking. And I tell them, you know, you've got a risk of getting a new separate melanoma. It's about 5% or so, maybe a little higher in younger patients by having had a melanoma. Now that's really the key for follow-up, and the, 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 uh, the interval of the exams can actually be negotiable a little bit, but back to our staging studies up front, right now there isn't any role of routine staging imaging studies or lab work unless the patient develops symptoms concerning for recurrence. Again, wouldn't get chest x-rays, wouldn't get LDHs, they don't help. 
If patient is high risk, different story. Patient has symptoms, different story. But routines, we're gonna need to get out of some of these routines. I only put this down to say this is, the future is gonna be molecular signatures of all tumors, but melanoma is no exception, and stay tuned. I'm not gonna get into any detail on this. <clears throat> I wanna spend just a second, how am I doing time-wise, am I okay? Tell me. You saying one? 20? 20 minutes left? Yeah. Holy smoke. All right. You guys okay? You doing okay? All right. So I want to talk about this for a second because your patients are going to come in and ask you about this. So I figure you might as well know a little bit about it. There's actually some new drugs that are now approved for patients with melanoma that I think you should be aware of at least the basics. I'm not going to get into the depth of science that Paul did because he knows more science than I. But I'll get it at a level that I understood it when I heard it. And I bet you guys will too. So one, there, there are immunotherapy approaches that, that besides alpha interferon, and you heard about the injectional, the beta interferon injections in the lesion. Well, you also know about alpha interferon, which is that tough, tough drug and really doesn't work very well. That's all we've had for patients with stage three or higher risk melanoma for many years. Well, now we've got another one, ipilimumab, or the trade name is Yervoy. I remember it because my colleague calls it Oive, so it's easy to remember. And I'll talk about that in a second. And hot off the press is now an anti-PD-1 or program death, one uh, immunotherapy that's just starting to hit the press and really provides some, some, some neat possibilities. The main thing about the immunotherapy approaches for advanced stage melanoma is in that, uh, the small group of patients who respond, there can be lasting, durable, complete responses that have the flat curve, not the I'm gonna continue my survival until dead. They actually level off, and I'll show you one of these. So we finally have something more than alpha interferon, finally. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the targeted therapies, and many of you may have heard of the BRAF inhibitors that I'll touch on, and there's also some CKID inhibitors. This has been used for um, CML and, and, and GIST tumors, Gleevec, uh, and then very briefly on MEK inhibitors. So just the, this is one of my few cartoons on here, I mean, but this is, uh, ipilimumab is re really blocks the CTLA-4 uh, 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 epitope right here. And the key is that's, that's one of the breaks of the immune system. CTLA-4 is, is the reason we don't tear ourselves apart with our immune system. People with rheumatoid arthritis and thy thyroiditis and others have an imbalance of this. So they don't have the breaks. So what happens is a T cell is looking at an antigen presenting cell, and if they connect up, it's going to activate T cells to, to fight whatever's going on. But what happens is this can, uh, the CTLA-4, this middle part that I'm trying to show here, right there, can come in and block that so that the T cell won't cause more T cells. So that's, that's what the break, we have a, a system of checks and balances that work normally. So what ipilimumab does is it turns off the break. It, it binds to this CTLA-4 antibody that was blocking this response, so where the break should be on, it allows it to go. The idea is it will, it will rev up the body's own immune system to recognize and kill tumor cells. And you might think, well, wait a second, you just turned off a break, so isn't there a consequence to that? And the answer is yes. Have any of you have any patients treated with ipilimumab yet? They, yeah, so they get, they get some problems because this immune break is important. They can actually get a pretty nasty colitis and even to the point of being hospitalized from that, uh, that is a response to turning off the breaks of the immune system. 
So there, there are some side effects, but relative to alpha interferon, it beats the heck out of that. And I won't bore you with the details, except that this, the, the trial that, and we've had so many trials for adjuvant treatment for melanoma that have been negative, negative, negative. This was a trial looking at ipilimumab versus a, a, a vaccine. And it was a three-arm trial. And as terrible as these survival curves look, because they should look terrible to you, you should just be depressed when you see them. You know, here's the group that got the, the vaccine. You know, there's a five, eight percent four-year survival. The other ones that got IPI, both in these other arms, are looking, this is 20%, and that's about 15%. As miserable as those look, that's a home run hit for that 15 to 20%. They are probably cured. It's only 15 to 20%. We need to do better. We haven't seen curves like this with other therapies really ever. Even interferon wasn't this good. So it's not the end all, but it's actually some hope. And these immunotherapies have this lasting response that we're really, really encouraged by. Now, uh, the other one I thought, thought I'd mention to you was the BRAF story. Has anybody been following that over the last year? The big, big New England Journal article about a year ago by Keith Flaherty, looking at the, the blocking of these tyrosine kinase pathways and down in the RAS pathway, and you can see BRAF. It turns out that about 40%, excuse me, 40 to 60% of melanoma patients have a mutation, a specific mutation in BRAF in their melanoma cells. It's called a V600E mutation. And it turns out if you have that mutation and you treat them with this, the 40 to 60%, there's a response rate of 81% for patients with stage four metastatic melanoma, 81%. Never seen this before with this disease. Well, as exciting as that was, because take a look at this. This is from the New England Journal article. This is a patient riddled with metastatic melanoma. Look at the day of treatment. That's day 15. It's gone, almost gone. This, when they first saw this, they almost went through the ceiling. However, this lasts about six to eight months, and then they are back to that. Almost the same amount of disease. <sighs> Pop that balloon. But at least there are targets that, are, that can be very defined, and actually uh, the morbidity of the treatments. This is an oral therapy, much easier than certainly an interferon or the ipilimumab. And we just need to stay on top of this thing. And now the other targets that we're going after, there's a MEC article that came out at ASCO just a couple of months ago. It's not a home run hit, it's even less. But you know what? You keep pounding on these things, and eventually you're going to shut that pathway down. So it's just a matter of time. Now for this audience, you also need to be aware of an interesting little side effect that has, actually has been big implications for you guys. And what happens is, and when you block this BRAF and take it, keep it from going to the next part of the pathway, the ERK thing, what ha you block that, it binds to CRAF, another RAF, which actually becomes stimulated and stimulates through this way, and those cause either squamous cells or keratoic anthomas. So these patients actually come in. Has anybody seen the patients like, you've seen this? They're gonna come your way, and they're gonna, patients are gonna go, what the heck is this? And you know, I don't, I don't like keratoacanthomas. I don't know what you guys think of them. It just looks like 
that's just so much like a squamous cell, and it's a fast one. I know we're supposed to not do anything with it, but I don't really like it at all. You can imagine when these patients are popping up with these, it's a pretty scary thing. Now, the good news is you stop the drug, and it goes away. But just be aware of this. You may have some acarotoacantomas springing up as these patients start to get these inhibitors. And the main thing is the newer generation is trying to knock out both CRAF and BRAF so you don't run into that. But don't be surprised if you see a little bit of this while these are coming through. And I only mention this because uh, the, the uh, acral lentiginous melanomas and mucosal melanomas have a higher mutation in C-kit. And that has a drug that's been around. Imatinib has been around, or Gleevec, has been around for patients with GIST tumors or CML for a long time. So we have another target for some of these patients who have a mutation in C-kit. So what we're starting to do is doing tumor profiling with actionable targets with drugs that are out there. And we're finally starting to see a little bit of progress. I don't want to overplay it as we're far along, but there is actually hope on the horizon with this disease. Now, I want to just finish with a little hope. Uh, it, it will, it's, not, it's not as scary as the first slide that I show, but it may be a little unsettling. Um, as, as you may know, right now, everybody in this room, if you want to find out your DNA sequence, you can go tomorrow and get your DNA fully, at least your exomic DNA uh, sequenced for about $4,800. Your DNA, you can get a result from that right now. In about two or three years, we're gonna have the $1,000 genome. That means it's not that, you know, people, if they're thinking this is gonna influence my health, they're gonna go do it. People, patients are gonna do that. They're not gonna wait for insurance carriers. They're saying, I will come up with that money to know what my, is in my DNA. The health implications of this, predisposition for cancer, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's, huge. So what's gonna happen, there's about to be a technology, there's already a technology that's way beyond where we wanna be. There's gonna be a tsunami of technology and patients are gonna come in. And the, the patient of the past comes in like this, the one in about five years is gonna come in like this. They're gonna have, you, you've seen that, that WAMU commercial where the patients scan their foreheads on the, Maybe some of you saw that. They're going to come in and they're going to say, here's my DNA, and tell me what we're going to do with this. <laughs> and you do know we are not ready for this at all. Now, we're trying at UW and Fred Hutch, as at Dana-Farber and MD Anderson and others, we're trying to collect as many tissues as we can to at least look at the molecular profiling and the targets that are actionable now and the ones we need to discover we are so far behind the ability of people to come in and the patients are gonna be the drivers. And here, this is the problem we've got. Anybody see that movie? Remember Jack Nicholson? We are not ready to handle the truth. And what we're gonna do, patients are gonna come in, they're gonna sit down and they're gonna say, which direction do I need to go? And this is what they're gonna get. This is an actual sign in Edinburgh, Scotland on a rainy day. It's pretty clear that we don't have a clue how to deal with that. Thanks very much for your attention. So we have time, time for questions or if not? 10 minutes. What I also like to do is do cases. Does anybody have any cases they want to throw out of? What about this? What, what should we have done with this or not? If you don't, that's okay too. It's late in the day. Any questions on the topics? Yes, sir. I, you 
um, when talking about sentinel uh, lymph node biopsy and the risks in those less than a millimeter in depth, yes. um, how do you feel in those patients who have a superficially spreading melanoma, how do you feel about having that discussion of perhaps offering them a sentinel node biopsy? Yeah. Well, the, the sent, anybody who has a diagnosis, you know what they do, right? They, they go on the web and they, you run into sentinel node biopsy right off the bat. So they don't know where they fit in the risk of having a sentinel node. They just look and go, there's a way to find out if it's in my nodes. And if it's in my nodes, it's scary. So they, I, I see usually a pretty biased group of patients who already are kind of sentinel node believers. And I usually have to talk them out of it. And what I do is I give them the best data I have about the likelihood of finding a positive sentinel node based on the pathology we have and how that would change their prognosis and, and maybe most importantly, how it would change their management. An 85-year-old man coming in with this with a, with a, 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 one, a mitotic rate of one and a 0.7 millimeter thick melanoma, they're usually going to listen anyway. I usually say, you know, I really think just a wide excision alone of this is the way to go, and they say, great. But you've got a 25-year-old uh, and an IT person, they come in with their three pages of type questions. So I, I give them that information. I try to, I say my first recommendation would do, be do a wide excision alone if they're in that 2, two to 3%. But then, you know, I, I really look at how, what are we doing when we treat patients? Are we doing just what we medically think is the right thing to do, or are we really treating the whole patient? And I'm convinced there's a group of patients who will not sleep. Their, their lives are gonna be completely disrupted if they don't know what's in that node. So I'll try two or three times to talk them out of it. And then if I, if I really think, they're saying, fine, fine, when do we schedule the sentinel node? You know, I, I, we do. So we do, some, we do some sentinel node by it. But I try to talk them out of it. But I really think listening to the whole patient and we heard earlier, I think Paul was mentioning, you guys listen to patients well, right? So you're gonna, you're gonna have, be able to have that conversation. I've learned over the years, listen to patients, listen to what their goals are. But I tell them, this is the number we're talking about as best I can tell, and my first recommendation would be not to do it. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Okay. Any other? Question regarding the, uh, yes. there's kind of a debate between uh, our most surgeons that we refer patients to yeah. and our surgeons uh, on the oncology side that we refer to regarding yeah. the lentigo malignant melanomas. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Mohs versus, oh, and the surgeons, we've been, we initially were doing more Mohs, but yeah. now we're sending them to uh, our surgeons for wider excisions. Could you comment on yeah. your thoughts? It's a tough, tough area, as you know, especially, of course, where the lentigo is going to be, face, right? Give me the face. And the problem is, is the, often the, the margins, not only clinically, but microscopically, are not clear at all, and they're in a cosmetically sensitive area. And I don't have the best answer for that. In our institution, Dan Berg, who many of you may know, who's our, our Mohs surgeon and our main, he has a big interest in, in facial melanomas or atypical melanocytic lesions. Um, I don't have a problem at all with Mohs excision for non-invasive melanoma or atypical melanocytic hyperplasia. With invasive melanomas, there is some data that can say it is probably safe, and I think you've got to put it in the context of, of what's the likelihood that you're going to have a recurrence. A local recurrence of invasive melanoma, I don't care where it is, is a big problem. Anybody that comes back with a local recurrence. But I think the ones in the face, including Aldera treatment, for, for those, I bet, I bet you guys are doing that, and I would too. 
because there's some patients, you know, 85-year-old comes in again and they've got this big broad area, you know they're gonna have a giant hole. I don't care if you do Mohs or a wide excision. I'm not sure, you know, we, we, we are pretty careful with our margins when we do a wider excision on the face in particular, because again, the margin numbers that I mentioned were mostly consensus. So I think it's a balance. So I think everything's on the table for, for the very thin lesions, including the atypical melanocytic hyperplasia that you just chase and chase and chase, and finally you just need to stop. They have a field defect. They have a field defect in the whole side of their face. Difficult topic. I don't have an answer for that one, except don't necessarily dogmatically say it's got to have this big whack. But think twice before you are sure that in that patient's lifespan and with their goals, that they're going to be okay with a Mohs excision if something comes back. It's a, it's a difficult spot. It's a great question. I stayed away from it, you see, because it's so controversial. Yes? I, that's not on, I don't think. Try it again. Try it again. He's doing something in the back. Is she on now? Just talk really loud. Oh no, oh no, you guys are on this theme. That's going to make me squirming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, this is an extension of what I was trying to avoid that you guys are bringing me back to, which is the atypical melanocytic hyperplasia. Well, as, as in many in situ or, or hyperplastic conditions, and breast, I treat breast cancer as well, there is clearly a continuum of atypia to in situ disease and invasive disease. I don't think any of us think that there's an obligate move from atypia to melanoma, but picking out which ones are going are to progress is not easy. So we try to, I try to get clear margins for not only invasive and, and in situ disease, but also for atypia. But again, sometimes there's a field defect. I mentioned the face, but it can be on the arm or the trunk, mostly on the extremities is where I see it, where you just keep chasing. And I think at some point, you just stop and you say, you know, we're gonna, this area may be at some increased risk of getting a local recurrence, but we're just about to take your arm off here and, and weigh that. So we try to get clear margins whenever possible. We document when the margins are close or have a tibia at the margins. And if you, can get, if you can get a little more and get it off, I think that's probably the right thing to do. There's very little data to know what is the progression of the atypia and which ones are obligate that will do it. Now, on the molecular studies that are going to come out, including for breast cancer and others, we're probably going to be able to pick out the, the atypia that will progress, but that's not ready for prime time right now. So it's individualized. Try to get clear margins, but realize sometimes you just got to you know, cut and run and tell the patient, you may be at increased risk, but I think we're going to stop or we'll take your arm off. Great, great question. You're making me squirm on those. They're hard. Any others? Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs>